We are going to be in Ephesians 3 tonight. And we're going to look at the... We're, we're leaping over a passage as Snowpocalypse continues to wreak havoc on what I preach on. Um, so we're leaping over the first half of Ephesians 3 and we're going to land on the, the latter half of Ephesians 3. Basically, Paul has now gotten to the end of his first half of the book. Uh, This book kind of divides itself very purposefully. Paul has been talking about who God is and that God has this cosmic purpose uh, which he set um, by his own, according to his own will before the beginning of time. Um, It's the mystery that's been hidden for ages in the passage that we are skipping over this week, uh, the first half of Ephesians 3. uh, Paul says that this mystery is that the Gentiles have now been brought in. And we looked at and talked about that last week, about um, how those who are far off have been brought near by the gospel, that Christ in his flesh has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Now all people come Come to God on the same footing, and that is on the footing of who Christ is and what He's done. That's the power of the gospel. That's this mystery that God has been unfolding for ages, and that's the mystery that God will now unfold until Christ comes again through His church. Okay? And as we move into the second half of Ephesians, uh, Paul will start talking about the Christian life. The ways in which we should live. He's been talking about, uh, up to this point, how we're saved. What God has done for us. Why we can't do things on our own. Why we need God. Why salvation is salvation and not just a shot in the arm. And then, in the latter half of the letter, he moves into the Christian life and Christian living in light of that gospel. But before we get there, Paul pauses right here at the end of Ephesians 3 and he prays. So that's what I want to look at here. Read with me Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. I wonder if you could ask God anything, what would you ask Him? If you could ask God for anything, what would you ask Him for? You see, Paul's been laying it on thick, okay? There's one of the reasons why Ephesians is one of my favorite books, because you could spend weeks and weeks, years on this book. You could spend that much time just on the first half of the book. He's been laying it on thick of these great, expansive ideas um, uh, about God's purpose, His mystery, His will, um, about Him and about salvation, um, our condition apart from Him. And the way that this book is actually laid out, it actually tells us something big. The fact that he spends the first half on that before moving into practical things like this is how your life should look. You see, the Ephesians 
um, did not have an easy life. The Ephesian Christians, okay, they lived in a bustling city uh, in Ephesus. And there were people in Ephesus, a good amount, that hated the gospel. And they hated Christians because it disrupted their business of idol making. People were coming from all over Asia Minor to this city to buy little trinkets and to worship at the temple of Diana. And the gospel basically disrupted all that. And we read in Acts that they actually riot. The city riots against the gospel because it's disrupting all their stuff. But it's amazing. Paul doesn't mention their suffering specifically once. He doesn't mention their specific circumstance or context, though he knows it well. He loved the Ephesian church. He spent time there. He cries. He gives a speech in Acts 20 when he leaves the church to their elders. But he hasn't mentioned it once, okay? He's been laying it on thick about God and God's grand purpose and God's grand mystery being revealed. And now he stops and he prays. But the thing is, he doesn't pray for God to deliver them. He doesn't pray for God to, like... um, Uh, To relieve their persecution or their suffering. He doesn't even mention it. He prays for their beliefs. He prays for what he's been talking about and that they would know it better. He's basically saying, everything I've said to them, Father, will you help them know it more? You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a tree uprooted um, after the ice storm. There were a lot of trees laying over, right? But when you've ever seen like a good, healthy tree with a good root system uprooted, it's always neat to kind of see just how well anchored that tree was and how great of a force it must have taken to uproot that tree. Because when you see the root system of a tree, um, you see why and how a tree can tower so tall and be so top-heavy, right? You have to have a healthy, spread-out, strong root system to hold a tree up. Paul comes to the end of this first half of Ephesians. He offers up a prayer on the Ephesians and our behalf. And he's praying about how we would structure our lives. He's praying about everything that he said before, how that would then take root in our lives and then produce itself in fruitful living. That's what he's praying for. And so he's talking about, you could think about the way that he wants our lives to look as the root system of a tree. And he talks about it with four main roots. And that's the way I want to look at it. He talks about strength. He talks about love. He talks about knowledge. And he talks about fullness. Those are the four things I just want to look at really quickly. Okay? The first one is strength. Paul prays that we would be made strong by something. He says that I pray that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, and he prays that this would happen according to the riches of his glory. Now, one thing you got to ask, what is the riches of his glory? Well, what is God's glory? Well, Colossians is actually a very parallel book to Ephesians. Uh, most commentators think he wrote the letters around the same time because they're so similar. Well, this is something Paul says in Colossians 1.27. He says this. He's talking about the mystery and, and how God has called him to be a minister of the, minister, the, the mystery. And he says this. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the riches of the glory of the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what are the riches of this glory? It's exactly what Paul prays for. It's Christ in you. The riches of his glory is you. What he wants to do in you. 
You are the riches of His glory. Another passage that we skipped over earlier, um, the latter half of Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul wants us to know the riches of God's, he says, His glorious inheritance in the saints. His glorious inheritance in the saints. What is God's glorious inheritance? It is the saints. It is the people of God. It's you. His glory. His inheritance. What makes God feel wealthy is you. Paul wants you to be strengthened by that. So the first step to kind of reorienting the inner man to solidifying, to fortifying the inner man is the singular idea that God treasures you. He treasures you. Think about this. How would you like to be in charge of Bill Gates' birthday party? Bill Gates, the big Microsoft billionaire, right? That would be a hard job, would it not? How do you throw a birthday party for the guy that owns everything? Okay? Okay, now think about God. The psalmist tells us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But the Bible also tells us that his treasure is you. How are we going to wrap our minds around that? When he thinks of us, when he looks at us, he feels wealthy. What Paul is saying is to take that in is to be strengthened. But did you find it interesting the way that he phrased it? Let me read it again. Strengthened with power through the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I mean, if we're Christians, doesn't Christ dwell in our hearts? It's interesting to note, this is the only verse in the Bible that talks about Jesus dwelling in hearts. Thought I'd throw that out there. How do we usually think about finding strength? How do we usually think about being weak and like, I need to be stronger? We usually think in terms of, well, I need, to, I need to try this. Or I need to try not to do that. That's where my strength, weakness uh, conundrums happen. We, in seminary, uh, I had a professor that called it sola bootstrap up. It means you pick, your, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, I just got to start doing this better, right? Um, it's kind of the Nike Christianity. Just do it Christianity. Paul says to go about life in that way, to find strength in that way, is to barely scratch the surface. That is the most shallow form of strength, Paul would say. He's saying what you actually have to do is to change your view of God. What is your view of God? How do you view God? How do you think of God? How do you reflect on Him? A good way of thinking about that and answering that is... How does your view of God change when things are going really well? And then how how does your view of God change when things aren't going so well? When things are actually pretty crappy? How is your relationship to God when you feel like He's blessing you and congratulating you and patting you on the back? And then what about those times that you feel like He's just standing over you, frowning and tapping His toe? Why Paul spends three chapters on the wonders of God's purposes and mystery is so that you will change your view of God. Because you will never change if you don't change your view of God. And you will never, view your change, you will never change your view of God until you understand how He views you. That's what Paul's getting at. That's why Paul says we need strength. That's why he he wants us to have strength to have Christ come into us. Because we have a way of keeping him out. Of refusing this truth that he actually treasures us. And the word there, um, 
it says Jesus is coming to dwell in our hearts. He's coming to take up residence. He's coming to make our hearts his home. Okay, I, we own a house for the year that we've been in Macon. We own a house for the first time in our life, uh, in our married life, Carrie and I's married lives. Um, you know, we've taken care of the homes that we've rented in. Uh, but you know, when my children ripped the blinds off my rental home, like I was upset, but it's not my house. You know, kind of that feeling like I'm paying rent, but we'll be out of here soon, probably. Now that we own a house over the last year of owning a house, I've spent a good chunk of money on that house. Um, makes me uneasy. Uh, but I built a deck. I built a, well, I didn't build it. I paid to have someone build a deck. Uh, <laughs> clarifier. Um, and I love the house all the more because of this deck, because I paid for it, because it, it increases the value of my house. In my mind, I don't know if it's going to pay off when I sell it, but like in my mind, my use of my house, my enjoyment of my house, is my deck used to be like this big. I'm not even joking. And now it's like almost as big as this section of chairs. It's amazing. You should come sit on it. Um, I love my deck. And... The fact that I invested in my home that way makes me like, makes me treasure my home all the more. Paul is saying, Jesus is coming. He's praying that we would be strengthened as Jesus comes to make his home in our lives, in our hearts. Because we are that which he treasures. And when we take that in, when we see that happening in our lives, Paul says we'll be strengthened. The second thing he talks about is love here, okay? Love. He says that we should be rooted and grounded in love. So he gives us this image of a tree and the image of a house. How does love make us like a well-rooted tree? How does love make us like a well-founded house? Um, There's not much that can upset a well-founded building or a well-rooted tree. But I don't know if you all remember the the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. The videos that came out of that. People like up up on their balconies like looking out over their neighborhoods. And like whole neighborhoods are just like floating down the street. It was the most... It was the most surreal thing you've ever seen in my life. All of a sudden these once very firm stationary objects have come... Um, face-to-face in sudden conflict with these destructive forces. Paul says love is to be more rooted, to be more well-founded, to be more stable, to be more stationary, to be solidified. What does love do? In that analogy, what love does then is it neutralizes the tsunamis of your life. It neutralizes those things which throw you off your foundation. Love does that. Love is the thing that makes you stationary, makes you strong, makes you sound. Love is the stronger opposing force to the windstorms or storms of our inner lives. Those things in us that lead us to to tear down other people, to tear down ourselves. Love that gets rooted in the heart of the Christian tends to reorient everything we do when we look at other people. Notice notice I said when we look at other people. I had a conversation with somebody earlier this week. Um, She's in the room, but I won't look at her. Um, And I do this too. And she was telling me the story about how she did this. uh, And it amazed me because I do this too. But there are times like when we meet people and we just make make the determination that we do not like that person just by the way they look. Or the way that they looked at you, right? And so, and, and then, you know, usually we have stories like months later, like I actually talked to the person and she was sweet um, and we became friends. But 
Why do we do that? It's this fundamental condition of our alienation that we're, that we're always... And the continual urge to prove ourselves, this continual urge to demand that others prove themselves worthy to us. We're always doing this with, when we're in groups, no matter what kind of group you're in. We're always doing that, measuring, finding people in the weights and balances all around us. A sign that you're being rooted and grounded in love is that suddenly you begin connecting people, connecting with people on a real level that otherwise you never would have. And actually, otherwise, you probably would have made sure you didn't because you didn't want to. And it's because you found a love that has done away with your need, your incessant need to prove yourself. Or you found a love that has done away with this urge that we have to make others, others prove themselves worthy to us. Very personal illustration for me this past weekend. Um, past weekend, I went home to Jackson, Mississippi, to my home church. I grew up in a very big church, um, and they support me financially. Um, I raise money for a living, by the way. I don't know if y'all knew that. Um, so I went back to my home church for their missions conference. They had they hosted me uh, as one of their many missionaries. Um, and part of the deal was that Sunday morning, uh, along with the other missionaries there that weekend, I was going to get 15 minutes in one of the big combined Sunday school classes. So I was looking really forward to it. I was going to. I spent time like con- condensing stuff to tell people about Mercer, about what God's doing on campus, what He's doing through the ministry of RUF. I, I was looking forward to telling people um, what we've been doing here. And I got to church and I found out that I'd basically been lost in the shuffle and they had not assigned me to a class. Um, And so their solution was that I was going to go talk to the special needs class. And I have to be honest, in that moment, my heart sank. Because I came into church with this thinking that I was going to have the opportunity to talk to people with money about what I was doing and what I was raising money for. But I'll tell you something. I, I was disappointed in that moment. But I'll never forget my 15 minutes in the special needs class. Because they didn't care who I was. But they could not have been happier that I was there. And they showed it to me. Over and over and over again. Through smiles, through hugs, through handshakes. It was amazing. They couldn't write me a check. But they did everything they could to tell me that they loved me. Not even knowing who I was. I think the, Paul, the picture that Paul's getting at here is that when that kind of love takes root in your heart, you become a settled person. You become a person that cannot be torn down. You become someone who stands like a tree planted by living water or someone who's built like a house built on a rock. But again, Paul says we need strength for that. And so he moves on to knowledge and he actually, he says we need more strength to know something, to comprehend something. Okay? Uh, so Paul, Paul here, for the Christian life, he's about to begin about what the Christian life looks like. The foundation of the Christian life for Paul is knowing. Get that. The foundation of the Christian life for Paul is knowing. It's not feeling. It's not something you feel, like you feel good about it, or that you're sold out about it, or you're on fire about it. It's not about doing. It's not about having all your ducks in a row. That's not the Christian life for Paul. It's not, here's the standard, go and get it. He didn't start there. 
Now, as he moves into the second half of this letter, he's going to say that right living, you want to know how to live, right living flows from right knowledge. Paul wants us to know something. And what he's essentially saying here is he talks about we need strength to know something that can't be fully known, surpasses knowledge, he says. Paul is basically, I'm blown away about something and I want you to know about it. In verse 18, he talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Usually we talk about things in three dimensions, either um, um, width, height, and depth or, or any match, mix of those two. Never four. Paul says in four ways. It's something that utterly blows him away and he wants us to know it. Now think about that song. <laughs> I looked this up. I actually used this. Kind of used this illustration last semester, but I love this illustration. Somewhere over the rainbow, that song, right? Um, somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, right? Where treble, trouble melts like lemon drops, high above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. I just put that line in there because I didn't want to read the whole thing. But, I, you know, you think about that. I think there's a reason no one has ever found the pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow. Because it's not meant to be found. But we're all sure it's there, aren't we? Meaning, I think the main sentiment of that song is the longing. Longing for a place that cannot be gotten to. Paul is saying, I want your mind to be blown. I want you to come to know something that you cannot fully come to know. By the length and the height and the depth and the width of the knowledge of God and how much He loves you. You can look at it, you can look into it and ponder it for weeks or years or decades or lifetimes and you will never come close to the bottom of it. You cannot exhaust it. And Paul says, I want you to see that in God. But I, did you catch the means by which we will do it? He wants us to comprehend it with all the saints. With all the saints. See, where do we go with the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow? I don't know about you, but I think most of us, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, we go to like this solitary place of this, you know, my perfect place of peace and solitude, wherever that is for me. Right? But Paul says the primary means of growing in this knowledge is with all the saints. Meaning you cannot do it alone. You can't. You won't find it by yourself. You find it in community. It can't just be mere intellectualism. It has to be relational. Meaning, if you want to see the gospel at work, you have to see it in other people. I mean, if you want to believe that the gospel really heals broken people, you need to be around broken people. If you want to see that the gospel actually forgives some of the worst kind of betrayal, you actually need to commit yourself to people you know who will betray you. You want to see that the gospel gives hope to those who have been completely disappointed. You have to be willing to be disappointed yourself with other people in this place called the church. This imperfect, broken, messy, sometimes boring place that doesn't do this or that the way that I want to. The church. Going after Jesus, going after His love, looking into His love, wanting to grow in a knowledge of Him... Doing that without the church is like taking driver's ed but never getting in a car in your whole life. You can say you know how to drive, but you've never even been in a car. If you want to drive the gospel per se, Paul says the place for it is in the church. 
And he's going to keep coming back to this as we go through. Um, in three, um, in verse 10, passage we skipped over, he says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that the work of the gospel in the church is actually putting the devil to shame. That's what he's saying. He's like, if you want to look for proof that the gospel works, go to the church. And sometimes we think, well, that's the last place I see the gospel at work. You're exactly right. We talked about this last week. Does it mean when we find the church in an imperfect place that the gospel has failed? No. It means that the gospel has more work to do. And guess what? It will have more work to do every single day until Jesus comes back. That's why we need the gospel every single day. In the church. And again, this and this isn't in... I'm not just talking about a group of believers. I'm talking about the church as an institution. This place that Paul will go on in 1 Timothy to say has elders and deacons and preachers and prophets. This thing that the apostles built, right? This thing that Jesus says in the end he comes back for as his bride. The church. Read the New Testament. It's over and over and over again there. Finally, it leads us to this. As we're strengthened, as we find love, the love in Christ and love for each other, and as we find it in the church, we find fullness as Paul prays for us. The last thing he prays is he says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that's not that we get some deity as um, I sat down with some Mormons last week. That's what they believe. Um, It's not that we become God or we become absorbed into God. It's that we are filled unto the fullness of God, meaning we are filled to the degree that God is a full being, a complete being. We are full, we are complete as God is complete, lacking nothing. Paul wants us to be made complete. He says in uh, Philippians 1 that I am sure that he who began a good work on you in you will bring it to completion. That's what he's getting at here. What does it mean, though, to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, first, one way of thinking about it, we can at least agree that we need something like it. What do I mean? You know, there's those times in life, too many to count in my own, more than I want to count or would rather admit. There's those times in life where there's only one word that sums me up. Empty. Sometimes it happens because of failure. Sometimes it happens even during great successes and things going well. Sometimes it happens when I'm isolated and I need to be around people. Sometimes it happens when I'm in the midst of people I know will love me no matter what. There's no telling when it'll happen. But there's those times where you take a look inside and you know that there's nothing there. You're just empty. Paul looks at that and this is what he says. I want that feeling to go away forever. That's what Paul's saying. It's something that Jesus says last night with his disciples in John 17. Uh, it's referred to commonly as the high priestly prayer. He says this in John seventeen twenty six. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what Jesus is praying for his disciples as he knows their world is going to be rocked. That they would be brought up into the love and the fullness of relationship that Jesus has known with the Father for eternity. 
That is what Jesus wants for us. That is what Paul is praying for us. And the thing is, is that his love goes to such depths and it reaches to such heights that he left his height above to come down below where we were so he could take us back up again. Why would he do that? I love this illustration. I steal it from my campus minister when I was in college, but I used to watch the movie when I was like 10 or whenever it came out. Um, The movie Hook, the Peter Pan movie with Robin Williams. Um, You know that movie at all? Peter Pan is in the real world and he's grown up and he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan and Hook kidnaps his children. So he has to go back to Neverland and rescue them, but he's a lawyer and so he doesn't understand that he's Peter Pan. He's trying to figure things out. Uh, But at the end of the movie, he's finally figured out he's Peter Pan and he's got his green tights on for some reason. um, And he's fighting the pirates um, and he's trying to get his children. And during the battle scene, uh, his son has completely switched and resents his father um, for being a lawyer that loves his work and has sided with Hook. And as, and as Peter Pan is fighting and making his way to his son, his son kind of begins to shed the robes of rebellion as he takes off the wig and the, the pirate's coat and the fake hook. And he's trying to figure out who this man is that's making his way to him. And finally, Peter Pan gets up to his son. He says, you know, Jack, I found my happy thought. So like that was the key to me remembering Peter Pan, that I was Peter Pan, was to find my happy thought. And you want to know what it was? It was you. It's like the most amazing part of the movie, right? And you're just like, you just want to stop it right there. Paul stops right here. Before he's going to move on and talk about what our life should look like. He's going to drive home one more time and he's actually going to pray that God does it for us. To drive home one more time just who God is and just how much God loves you and what he's done. Because Paul knows the moment that we forget that, the moment we're lost again. So he wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to be loved and to love. He wants us to know. And he wants us to be filled. It almost sounds too good to be true, right? But the question is, what if it was? Let's pray. Father, we long to plumb the depths, the height, the breadth, the length of your love for us. And what's amazing is no matter how deep we go, we haven't even come close to the bottom. Would we not forget that? Would we see who you are? Would we see who Jesus is? Would we see who you've made us to be? And that you will stop at nothing to bring us there. We pray that you would write these truths as we go into this break indelibly upon our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.